obscure can mean a lot of things. But if you're a regular listener or of a geeky, nerdy disposition or both, to you it probably rarely means uninteresting. It's rarely a turnoff. Often, it's the opposite. And that's what we have for you today. The Isle of Nath, or Nath, however you want to say it, is is unique and unlike anything we've seen in the known world. The people are extreme pacifists in a world of violence that is indeed unusual. And while generalizing over much about an entire ethnicity is a path riddled with errors, there's a reason to believe it might actually be almost true in this case. The features of Nath Nath, are just so unusual and extreme that one must discard much of what we expect from humanity. And they might have an origin that sets them apart from other humans, if not actual bloodlines from non-humans. We're presented with a race that both tests the notion that no people are a monolith while ultimately still proving it, I think. Thus, in some ways, we might look at this as a bit unnatural with regards to individuality and our perception of basic humanity. But the biggest singular reason for this, however, might be supernatural. So that quickly dispenses with any concerns regarding what is or what isn't natural or needs to be. And nobody suspects the butterfly. Well, today we'll do our part to put an end to this notion. We do suspect the butterfly. This unjustified butterfly exceptionalism ends now, I say. But notice too, I said biggest singular reason, not only singular reason. There are others. We'll delve into all that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So, I gotta say, I feel like I'm missing some kind of reference. What, what's with expecting a butterfly? It's a oh. Simpsons reference. There's also a, 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 a important a Song of Ice and Fire creator who goes by nobody suspects the butterfly we cited her a bunch yes, of times we've cited nobody suspects the butterfly many times i've been on panels with butterfly mindset at ice and fire con and i'm friends with her but mainly she's an amazing resource and a simpsons reference that's right so why don't we explain that reference entirely since we've started off with that i was going to do that later but why not now sure the reference itself is to round springfield Episode 125 from season six of The Simpsons. That's 125 of 750, mind you. That is the (laughs) current total of Simpsons episodes as of the recording of this episode. 
we're, we've been doing our show for a long time. We've only got, we don't even have half that many. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, at one point I'd seen 100% of The Simpsons, which was 700, and now I'm about 50 behind. Yeah, they just so. keep going. <laughs> Bart gets sick in that episode, which is on topic for the health in this episode. There's even a reference to a, cr- a brand of crusty cereal that has flesh-eating bacteria in it. This is the episode where Bleeding Gums Murphy dies. So all sorts of sicknesses that fit in with the butterfly sickness that we'll discuss today. So yeah, shout out to her and to The Simpsons. And with that, let's kick it off. Sean, you got anything special to drink today? Uh, anything like red or green or butterfly you know, related? It, it looks kind of murky. I, I used the uh, naked mango drink again with um, the coconut berry Red Bull and the uh, black raspberry uh, sparkling ice. And so like the kind of purpley and the orangey mixed together, you can, you can only see the layers because the mango, the you naked can see the layer, thick yeah. at the bottom, yeah. It's darker at the top for sure. It's delicious, I'll tell you. I doubt it. The coconut berry <laughs> Red Bull by itself tasted like medicine. Not so good, but mix it with some other stuff. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> well, hello and welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of History of Westeros podcast. Things a little bit out of order in our start today, but that's okay. We take things as they come. We maneuver and do what needs to be done to get our episodes flowing into their proper spot. How do y'all say it? Do you say Nath or Noth or just, I just kind of find myself bouncing back and forth like I do with a lot of these. I don't really settle on one. I kind of go down the middle. (laughs) I think we know how I say it. You say Nah. Nah. (laughs) No, I I, I think I say Noth and sometimes Nath, but I think I've started to lean towards Noth because I want to use not pun I yeah not make... allows more puns yes that, so it's that, nothing that... like the celtigar debate but yeah celtigar debate. <laughs> nothing like the celtigar yeah exactly like that kind I of I, pun. i think i say it a third way i think i say nath nath yeah i think that's fine yeah. too you not nath like you said nath. 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 i say that jokingly <laughs> <laughs> so this is also nath a live stream this is a pre-recorded episode we don't do that so often these days but every once in a while we do because of scheduling and things happening during our normal recording time. There are three of us, so sometimes we can't all be together on a Sunday. Usually we can't. So anyway, not too different, especially if you're catching this afterwards. I, I usually read through the chat after episodes, uh, which I, I appreciate the, the comments and insights that I find in there. So we might not have that for this episode, but, but I still read still the comments can... too. So comment away. There mm-hmm. still will be a live chat though. People can still oh. watch. It'll be a premiere. So if you are chatting, know that Sean will go back and read your chats. <laughs> Bonus. Yes. Bonus. Yeah. So we picked this one out because of the hiccup in our schedule. So this was not voted on by patrons. <laughs> Next week is the education episode, which is Ned's childhood. And if, if this episode ends and you want to stay immersed, well, we've got you covered with suggestions for topics related to this one, and we'll go through those at the end. As well, at the end of the episode will be the answer to this trivia question. The true name of the goddess of the unsullied is hidden to all but those who have sacrificed their manhood to the flames. They call her, to others, the Lady of Spears, or one of two other nicknames. What are those other nicknames? One or both. If you can name both, good for you. This episode will feel a lot like our Valar Reread Us for the World of Ice and Fire episodes. It's by nature a smaller topic, quite obviously focused on world building. That gives us a little extra room for real world comparisons, a little more room for theories. Yeah. If we were the kind of show to follow social media trends, 
well, first of all, we wouldn't do an episode on such an obscure topic, but we'd build this episode something like, you are not going to believe the shocking truth. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're watching, see where my finger's pointing? There it is. I'm doing a little circle around it almost. I'm having a hard time doing that because it's backwards. Yes. (laughs) But it's a red circle with an arrow pointing at it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Here is the first mention of the Isle of Noth. Krasnus's High Valyrian was twisted and thickened by the characteristic growl of geese and flavored here and there with words of slaver Argo. Danny understood him well enough, but she smiled and looked blankly at the slave girl, as if wondering what he might have said. The good master Krasnus asks, Are they not magnificent? The girl spoke the common tongue well, for one who had never been to Westeros. No older than ten, she had the round, flat face, dusky skin, and golden eyes of Noth. The peaceful people, her folk were called, all agreed that they made the best slaves. So we don't hear of Noth or the peaceful people until we get to Slaver's Bay, and sadly there's a reason for that beyond simple storytelling, though storytelling is of course huge here too. For example, Danny and us readers are seeing George turn up the dial on the evils of slavery. By giving us an unambiguously good people, it makes the evil of slavery even more evil because these are such good people. We're told that they're the best slaves because they're so peaceful. That's heartbreaking, right? I mean, it would be bad enough anyway, but like I said, George does like to turn it up to 11. This is a pretty good way to do it, you know, as far as writing goes. Yet even these folk are turned in not just slaves like Masande, who retain a lot of who they are, but slave soldiers like her brothers who have been through much more extreme conditioning. So it kind of remains to be seen how the Unsullied as a subplot will play out in this case in terms of them, you know, recovering some of their humanity or not, because the slavers go all out and making and taking that from them in order to make them killers. So Missandei hasn't been turned into a killer, but her brothers have been. And it remains to be seen if their original peaceful nature versus this traumatic training experience versus just the situation they find themselves in. They're still in Marine. It's not a place you can expect to survive by being a pacifist, I think. So I think it's a pretty interesting subplot uh, to be following here. And yeah, the reason we don't see the people from Nath is unless you see them as slaves, you're not likely to see them because they don't, as far as we're told, choose to leave their homeland, right? You're not going to see someone from Nathan Westeros just randomly. So if you see a person from Nathan, it's probably in bondage and that's, that's not great, but it does kind of make sense given the, the way it's set up. Kind of a sad, unfortunate truth that might be the case for a lot of peoples of Westeros. There was a time in the real world where it was the true for a lot of peoples of the of planet earth you know like if you were to see some an african person in america they're probably a slave you know for yeah. hundreds of years that was just the nature of the world that's a good point that's a good point let's talk about the actual place its nickname is the isle of butterflies here's the intro paragraph or just part of the intro paragraph to their section in the world of ice and fire northwest of sothorios in the summer sea lies the mysterious island of nath known to the ancients as the Isle of Butterflies. So it's been called that for a long time, which makes sense. 
In our episode on the Basilisk Isles, we briefly pointed out that Nath is almost close enough to be considered one of them, but it isn't, at least not by Westerosi map standards. Let's not forget that all such things are essentially arbitrary. Some people, other map makers around the world might consider it one of the Basilisk Isles. It's very different in terms of the people and, and disposition of the people, but in terms of geography, it's close. In terms of some other features, it's got some similarities, so... Hmm. Nor are apparently the other small islands west of Sartorius. There's some other, like, tiny islands that you can see on the map that don't have names. I always kind of wonder what's up with those, if they're also filled with nasty diseases or basilisks or something. Certainly if they have basilisks, they should be part of the basilisk isles. I mean, come on. <laughs> they're right there. I mean, but who knows what they have on them. And I wonder, too, like, it really fills me with... I just love seeing these little tiny islands. Whenever I see miniature isles on a map... You know, especially a fantasy map, but also a real map. I wonder, like, what's there? What's what's on that? Like, I'm drawn to the most obscure thing. And I wonder, like, is there any people there? Is there creatures on there? There's, like, species that have never had human contact at all. Or trees that have never heard the... What is that, that reference I made several weeks ago? Trees that have never heard the sound of an axe. Mm-hmm. Let alone felt the taste of the bite of one. I think we know Aziz's future fan fiction in the world <laughs> <laughs> that will not be happening <laughs> just kidding <laughs> that will not no, I, be the last time i do that in this episode <laughs> i think about that sometimes too some some little piece of nature untouched by man and it's kind of like i don't know intriguing or impressive or beautiful but there's no way to see it without it being touched by man it's kind of yeah. a catch-22 you know yeah that's true we need that's what we need that's what we have drones for these days, right? Does <laughs> that some, count as being touched? If you just send some Ifakevron down there, some children of the forest. Yeah, and their vast undersea tunnels, right? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be amazing if they had that. So there are other regional similarities, right? They they only have a little in common with the Summer Islanders. I mean, skin tone is maybe similar, but the Summer Islanders have a large variety of skin tones. And we don't necessarily know what varieties come in Nath. We haven't seen a lot of them, and it's not super well described because, I mean, you can't really do a study of their people because you can't really live there. It's hard to, and they don't leave. So, like, what do you know? Opportunities for academic research are very limited on this on this race. They have very different eyes in the Summer Islanders, which kind of also separates them uh, ethnically or from bloodline. Certainly, disposition is very different. And from what I mean is, the Summer Islanders are some of the most interested in world exploration, which they're not there, like, among the least <laughs> interested in going anywhere other than their homes. So, yeah. And, of course, the butterflies, the, the, the disease that seems to come from the butterflies, as we'll explain later, which is extremely deadly, one of the most deadly diseases we've seen, except maybe in comparison to some of the ones of Sothorios, is right next to Sothorios. So that really fits in with the idea that man the tropical ish region or subtropical region of this planet is really freaking deadly (laughs) y'all like there's some nasty nature there by the way not just deadly but gruesome right it'd be one thing if like you get exposed to it and you die of a fever three days later but it like your skin comes off or something right (laughs) (laughs) it's It's so bad yeah oof and the unfortunate proximity to slavers, right? The Basilisk Isles are also right there and elsewhere. But the Basilisk Isles are where a lot of the worst uh, slave raids come from, mostly just because of the proximity. 
But also we have to wonder, like back in the day, ancient times, it says that's been called the Isle of Butterflies since ancient times. Well, well, who, which ancients called it that? Which ancients were aware of that? When was butter invented? <laughs> <laughs> I did read about that. Like, why are they called butterflies in the real world? And the people don't know. Okay. Uh, there's, there's guesses. Oh. But yeah. It's one of them is that they f- they're out in the field during butter season, or one yeah. is that they, one of the most popular varieties was yellow, and so they just have the same color. But those are kind of, those are not very solid. Like, <laughs> you can imagine orders. like a green grass field suddenly being covered by yellow butterflies. It's like it's been buttered, you know. Uh-uh. <laughs> mm, butter grass. <laughs> so. I was also going to say in conjunction with that, like ancient times is kind of relative too. you know, what does ancient mean? Maybe you could assume it means at least, I don't know, several hundred years. I don't know. 500 is enough to be ancient, but especially in Martin's world, it could be 700 or 7,000 or 17,000. So yeah, I'm pretty sure in the real world, it means 2000 years or more, uh, which generally means ad versus bc that's gradually falling off every year we get a little farther yeah. away from that but still uh yeah like a thousand years ago is not ancient some people use it that way but historians and academics do not so properly if you're trying to be technical don't talk, don't mm-hmm. say ancient about something only a thousand years old <laughs> so it, it's shaped like a backwards question mark it only only imagine that the dot at the below the question mark has floated from under to inside the little hook part which, again, is another little, I wonder about that little island in there. The Nathi don't take ship, but the, do they take raft to that? I mean, it's so close, but even that might be something they've never gone to because it's, well, we don't leave our shores. Or even how affected is it by the tides? Is it yeah. possible to get across on foot in a low tide? You know, That's a great call. It might be. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, it might have a promontory. Yeah, it's really, really hard to say. Maybe there's, yeah, who knows? There's ways across. What kind of weird and awesome stuff would happen there if there's maybe some slightly different Nathi who live a little bit apart from the others? Maybe there's some caves on there uh, or some mountains or something. There's supposedly a hundred or more species of butterflies on the Isle of Butterflies. The Smithsonian Museum calls butterflies one of the most appealing creatures in nature. In real life, a hundred or more species of butterflies is nothing. There's 18,000 plus species of butterfly in the world. Every continent has them except Antarctica, which is true for a lot of species because very <laughs> few do live on Antarctica. They evolved from moths about 55 million years ago. So it does make sense that on Planetos, they'd also would have been around since before people from <laughs> by a long shot. Fun fact, some butterfly species embark on multi-generation journeys like they'll, a butterfly will embark on a journey it will make it part of the way it will breed and die and its offspring will continue that journey <laughs> and it can take up to six generations to get there it's i don't understand how they know are they remember is it ancestral memory or do they just have the same obvious goal in mind well my question is like would that original butterfly have gone to the same spot that the, or do they just continue like that's my question well, it we're, usually it's not one butterfly. It's they migrate. You know, it's yeah, like it's a whole a I don't know yeah, yeah. colony or whatever. And I believe that they're following some patterns. And it, that's 
it's like or, a generation however ship. instinctive it is or whatever but it has to do yeah. with like the, the 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 amount of daylight in the day and the direction of the sun is facing and things like that yeah they see and they see much different spectrums like they can see yeah. sunlight even when it's cloudy because they can see like infrared and and or ultraviolet I forget ultraviolet yeah. yeah ultraviolet yeah that's right and uh, yeah, it's like a generation ship from sci-fi, certain sci-fi series like The Expanse. There's that ship that's just going off to to, to a new planet that, that they're not going to get to in their lifetime. But the ship is built so that mul multiple generations of people can live on it. And eventually their ancestors will make it and establish a new colony. And it's this is kind of like that, but for the insect world. So that's pretty wild. You did some research you know, on them too, huh, Sean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a couple of times just now, I, 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 was, I wanted to say, I was choosing my words carefully when I would say butterflies because... You know, there's there's names for different groupings of animals, like a, a herd of sheep or a flock of geese or whatever. A group of butterfly is apparently sometimes called a flutter or a kaleidoscope. Oh, that's so cool, kaleidoscope. And uh, that was a neat one. But but I, in different readings, I found these different terms. I was like, well, which is it? And so I, I, I was trying to research just in general where these different kind of cute, unusual, weird names you get for groups of animals come from. And, you know, like Wikipedia had like this list, but I still want to, well, where did Wikipedia get this list? Where does it come from? <laughs> Apparently this English woman in the 1400s wrote a book on heraldry and hunting. And apparently she was from a wealthy family. So she maybe would have had some insight and she worked at a monastery and had whatever resources and motivation to consolidate all this information about how animals are referred to when they're hunted <laughs> and also the heraldry of the castles around like a weird yeah, hodgepodge a of weird information she put combo, out there yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a it's called the book of saint albans written by juliana burners mm. and uh i don't know she has uh, somewhat of a legacy a lot of uh all women groups, hunting groups are called burners. <laughs> burners. Yeah. Nice. Another it's called B-E-R-N-E-R. -E -E but, uh, yeah, yeah. but by the way, uh, yeah. a, a large group of caterpillars is called an army of caterpillars. Oh, how about I like that? that. There's so many of those good good names for groups. Mm. That is one of my favorite things. I don't know my favorite. I don't know if y'all have a favorite out of all of them. I don't know that. I, do. I love, you gotta love murder of crows or, or, um, what is it? A, uh, a, Cons it's a, a symphony of of destruction uh, of destruction. I see like a cacophony <laughs> of, of parrots. Or cacophony whatever. of parrots. <laughs> you know. A brace of no, I love a brace of asses. Oh uh, yeah, that's a, that's a <laughs> technical like a, term. A brace I like of a bloat asses. of hippopotami. A bloat of hippopotami. <laughs> a group of pandas is called an embarrassment. Oh yeah, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess because they're clumsy and flop around. And... <laughs> that sounds, but that sounds like a delight. <laughs> a delight <laughs> of pandas. Yes. Yeah, butterflies are really, really different, uh, diverse. There's butterflies that like help pollinate flowers. There's others that destroy crops. There's some that live in harmony with ants. There's others that eat ants. Yeah, they're just every type of everything. The caterpillars are called an army of caterpillars because they just destroy everything in their wake. They just eat all the vegetation that go across. Yet them. a group of butterflies is not called an air force. How? <laughs> That's weird. So on Nath, there's a lot of other insects. But maybe not regular flies, which is like, hey, how lucky. Because Danny asks, do they have flies on Nathan? She's like, well, we have butterflies, which is kind of like a, a no, we don't. But we have this instead. But that isn't necessarily what she meant. Maybe she was trying to change the subject. I don't know. But it sounded like, no, they don't have regular flies, which is lucky them. Another place, another reason why this sound, place sounds great, except for the death. 
the fact, except for the fact that we couldn't live there. <laughs> but the <laughs> most valuable insect there is the silkworm. And the silkworm is part of the reason why this country is is somewhat global despite being obscure and way the heck out there and way off the beaten path because silk is an extreme luxury good and there's lots of people in this world or in that world <laughs> in planetos who want that and there's been different times when though the value of such goods was extremely high because well rich people in particular want to buy silks it also has apparently delicate spiced wines and fine handcrafts, which sounds great, especially the spiced wines. People would want to get those things, probably very rare, maybe not as good as Arbor wine, but maybe, maybe one of the few competitive industries, certainly rare. So yeah, minus the deadly disease and threat of slavers, it's an extremely lovely place. <laughs> it's tropical and you know, it's fertile. It's got to be fertile because it supports a population that doesn't kill animals. So they're not eating meat. So they've got to be eating, you know, they got to be getting enough food from other sources. And there's enough of a population that people keep coming to try to enslave them. So it's, it might be sparse-ish, but it can't be that sparse if, if uh, slavery It's not comes. sparse because they're starving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's move on to the actual people themselves rather than their locale. The peaceful people, quote. The people native to the island are a beautiful and gentle race with round, flat faces, dusky skin, and large, soft, amber eyes, oft flecked with gold. The peaceful people, the Nathi are called by seafarers, for they will not fight even in defense of their homes and persons. The Nathi do not kill, not even beasts of the field and wood. They eat fruit, not flesh, and make music, not war. Make Sean's music. kind of people. Yeah, I was gonna say my kind of people. <laughs> He's like, it doesn't sound like great. Again, except for that darn butterfly plague, <laughs> it'd be an amazing place to live. But yeah, and you wonder, this isn't mentioned. It, it wouldn't be. There's not really a scenario where it could come up. Partly because the only Nathi we know of were taken as slaves when they were really young. So how could they have learned the Nathi music of their people? They were too young to have like learned how to play it. They wouldn't have been able to keep up practice with it. They don't have whatever instruments are native to their land. So someone like Masande, who's only like 10 or 11 now, has no has no ability to play an instrument. But it sounds like it's something they're really good at. Their songs could be really beautiful, really impressive, especially if it's something that they have worked on for generations. Maybe they have like ancestral music that they pass down, things like that, like songs of their histories, something like that. In fact, I the more I say it out loud, the more it feels true. And... It's yet, it's one of many things that connects them vaguely to the children of the forest who were called the singers, right? They also made music. The children did make war as well on the giants <laughs> and stuff, but still, I'm not saying they have everything in common. <laughs> I'd rather keep the positive image of the Nazi people, but I think it would be funny if they actually were really bad at music. If they... <laughs> Everything was out of tune, they had no sense of rhythm, but they didn't know. They had no relative music well, to compare it, it to. So they're just so happy no one to tell them it sucked. I mean, it could be it could be good to them if it's like out of tune to us, but yeah. to them like, ooh, looks at how that's so discordant. That's so <laughs> off key. It was the original way to try to keep people away from their island. Like, we're not willing to do <laughs> violence to invaders, but if we play really bad music, they will leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since they never took to the sea, we can't go through a list of like their explorations. Uh, but it does seem that the first outsiders to discover them were the Summer Islanders, which is fitting given the fact that they're so close by and the Summer Islanders were and perhaps 
the most adept at exploration, or at least they'd be in that discussion. If we've heard of Yacht Rock, <laughs> we have Noth Rock. Noth Rock. <laughs> it is not rock. <laughs> it's peaceful music, yes. It's definitely not metal. They don't even Yacht know. Rock what is pretty metal. peaceful. Yeah, it can yeah. be, yeah. Yacht Rock is. So they're probably decent neighbors, if not good neighbors to Summer Islanders, because they're not slavers. So that that's one huge benefit, at least by comparison to all the other potential neighbors that are around them. And I say potential neighbors because we're talking about a really long period of time. Like, what about Yeen? When Yeen was a city that actually had people living in it, when, however long that was ago, or whenever maybe Sothorios was more populated than it was, maybe in ancient times, Noth was connected to that maybe even settled by people from the mainland Sothorios because people just coming up on an island by themselves that's usually not how it works right people usually have to migrate to these small islands at, at some point you know they don't evolve separate from humanity that far ago maybe their land separated in some sort of continental drift thing but that would be millions of years ago so it doesn't seem as likely as just Something more recent, some settlers long ago developed their cultural exiles, maybe. Who knows? Get rid of those peaceniks. <laughs> Send them over to that island. And the peaceniks are like, yeah, we're happy to leave. And they're still going while the, the rest of the continent is turned to a virtual hellscape over there. Uh, the Summer Islanders are big on trading, and the Nathi, as we said, have these great trade goods. The silks, the handcrafts, the wine... Summer Islanders could probably make a killing reselling that stuff. They could, if that stuff is in really high demand around the world, well, the Summer Islanders are amazing at finding the marketplaces for those goods and then keeping track of all that, getting the best prices they can, also coming back to Nath with things that they can trade relatively cheaply. The Nathy were probably all interested in all sorts of goods that might not have much value elsewhere just because of the relative obscurity and their unavailability locally. So... Probably a lot of opportunity there. So I'm guessing, given that we don't hear about Westerosi visiting there or other people, maybe they do. Um, it's probably their number one trading partner is probably the Summer Islands. As to the people there, in terms of physical description, it says their eyes are often flecked with gold or oft flecked with gold. Misandes are, quote, like molten gold. So her eyes might be a little even out for her people might be a little outstanding. Maybe not. Maybe maybe the world of ice and fire just is a little wrong because how many subjects do they actually have, right? It, it seems like the error margin is bigger for a race like this. Uh, there's less known, there's more obscurity. And as our general rule is the farther away from Westeros, the less likely the accuracy is going to be there. And I think with islands, <laughs> that's even more true. Islands where there's a disease that keeps you from staying there is even, <laughs> it makes that reason even bigger. So, yeah. With Masande rising so high in Danny's esteem and amongst while a slave, just for her abilities, she was so good at languages and, and just thinking about them and speaking them, both delivering them and processing them. There's also that odd bit about her hearing the scratching in the pyramids, if y'all remember, in A Dance with Dragons. Like, what? I, this is a really interesting mystery that I don't want to tackle today, but want to bring it up as a <laughs> possible evidence that something else is going on with her or their her people i mean what is that is that some sort of magical ability or i don't know it's another maybe a little connection to the children of the forest but problem with connecting to the children of the forest is we're really really far from westeros and even if you have like continental drift or 
stuff like that. It's still kind of hard to imagine this was ever part of Westeros in any way. I mean, it's just so far away, and I don't know. I, I, I'm skeptical about that, but I'm open to it. Well, it's the Epicavron, in my opinion, is the connection. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that was my thought, too. I'm partial to it. I really like the idea that the Nathi people did at one point breed with the Ifrakevron. It could be because they could have relocated. I mean, if you imagine Sothorios was once connected to mainland Essos long, long, long ago, then they could be connected. Like where they are now, the Ifrakevron are arguably even farther away than Westeros is because they're all in North Essos. But, but you're right. I mean, we're talking thousands, if not tens of thousands of years ago. So like these distances don't mean as much when we're talking about longer periods of time and if the potential for the continents being in different places if we're going back like hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Yeah. Also just the, the, the more time that passes, the more opportunity for something that would be very unusual to happen. Something that only happens once in a thousand years might happen 10 times in a hundred thousand years. So yeah, something that's otherwise that, unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Hmm. Her brother, Marcellin has also risen really high. We'll talk about him later. So we have just a couple of examples of Nathi and they just seem to be like outstanding. Maybe it's just coincidence. Maybe it's for the purpose of the story. George just wants to highlight this character because it's Masandi's brother. They're but just built different. They're just built different. Just, and by, be, by different, I mean better. Better, yes. <laughs> Little, yellow, different, better. They're kind of like, what is that? <laughs> what was that? That was an ad for uh, Nuprin or some sort of medicine. I do not medicine. know that reference. Yeah, it's a little old medicine, some medicine commercial. An old medicine reference, really. <laughs> I won't be the only one to get that. But okay, yeah, I, I'm sure some people People know. more my, my age will get that one, not not, uh, not a Shea. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm referring to their eyes. Their eyes are little golden eyes, little golden yellow eyes. <laughs> But interestingly, multiple times Danny brings up taking Masande back there. And Masande's like, nah, I don't know about that. She's not super enthralled with the idea of going back. And I mean, she was taken when she was probably like four or five years old. She probably doesn't have great memories of it. And she also says she might be taken by the slavers again. She's kind of afraid of that. Which, go figure, she's worried about her childhood trauma occurring again. I totally get that i mean it makes sense like no i'd rather not go back to the to where that happened where i'm defenseless against that happening again so your example there was masande goes she asks if she wants to go back and masande goes nah (laughs) nah (laughs) nah and and, and danny goes finish your words (laughs) (laughs) no i didn't even think of it till just now but i wonder if george is trying to create a i don't know parallel or contrast or whatever that uh masande you know was taken from her home mm-hmm. too young to really know or understand what her home was in the first place or why she was taken from there but she has this new life now whose else does that sound like danny absolutely right? yeah this is the and red danny door is, not as her red and, door yeah and danny is almost obsessed with going back home where my Sunday's like eh, i don't care about going back home and yeah, I, I wonder if Maybe Masande has the better idea, you know, like she's not attached to this thing that she doesn't really even understand where Danny is. And maybe it's a mistake that I don't know. It's funny because, I mean, Masande kind of is now attached to a thing she also doesn't really understand, which is Danny's True. quest for her home. Uh, yeah. So either way, she's uh, part yeah. of a, a kind of vain quest. And, and maybe maybe Masande cares more about Danny's quest for justice. And roll it up in that is Danny wanting to get back home, but maybe that's also a mistake that Danny is making. And like, look, just do the right thing where you are now and stop worrying about getting back home. Like maybe I'm 
imposing too much of my thoughts about what Danny should do, but but I just never occurred to me that 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 sort of difference in that both similarity and difference between Danny and Sunday. Yeah, it really is. I mean, honestly, I have some notes on that later in the episodes. We'll come back to this a bit, but that's a yeah. You're right. You're totally right to think of that, and it's. Yeah, it's a place she can, she imagines it's a place she could not have all these responsibilities. It's something she thinks about when she's overwhelmed with all she has to do. Masande says she feels safe with Danny. And that's that's maybe as as important as anything else because she's still really young. Like half her life has been in slavery and the other half was, she was super, super young and has probably very dim she's memories. 10, of it. So, so yeah. yeah. So <laughs> safety is high up on her list. Like she's not an adult. So like she's not able to fend for herself despite her extreme capacity, her big brain, you know, she's still not able to fend for herself despite that, especially given where she is. She's like, I'm in Marine still, y'all. Like if you're if you're going to take ship to leave, I'm going with you no matter where you're going. If you want to take me back there, well, that would be better than being here. But <laughs> I feel safe with you. <laughs> so the Lord of Harmony, that is the God of Nath. Later, Danny thinks about the Lord of Harmony and feels like it sounds lonely to be what the Lord of Harmony is, which is a really interesting culmination of Danny's beliefs and, and character aspects. So, yeah, we'll come back to that. But let's talk about the Lord of Harmony for now. Here's a quote. Yeah, first off, I want to say I appreciate Michael Klarfeld as uh, he drew the Lord of Harmony for his map and he drew him uh, referencing Prince. Uh, you'll see. Mm. Prince is the Lord of Harmony. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the art. You, you see this the Prince of, of Harmony. Uh, anyways. Is that the Essos map he did? Yes, it's on the Essos map. Exactly. Anyways, uh, quote. The god of Nath is called the Lord of Harmony, oft shown as a laughing giant, bearded and naked, always attended by swarms of slender maidens with butterfly wings. A hundred varieties of butterflies flitter about the island. The Nathi revere them as messengers of the Lord, charged with the protection of his people. Mayhaps there is some truth to these legends, for whilst the docile nature of the Nathi seemed to make their island ripe for conquest, strangers from beyond the sea do not live long upon the Isle of Butterflies. In some sense, it's like the opposite, the death, the, the, the butterfly stuff. It's like when... Like the conquistadors came to South America, the diseases they brought with them wiped out the locals rather than the other way around. But people who visited, like natives who were brought back, a lot of like slaves who were brought overseas suffered a similar fate. They didn't have the immune system that developed in the place they were being taken to, nor was there enough cross-continental traffic for those antibodies to make their way into the various societies ahead of time. The Nazis see the Lord of Harmony as the one true God. It's a monotheistic religion, which opens up a lot of IRL religious com comparisons. Uh, the, <laughs> the line, swarms of slender maidens with butterfly wings, kind of sounds like sexualized angels or sylphs or certain versions of fairy. Of course, fairy is a pretty wide open term. Uh, it's a protector figure that enables their pacifism. It's pretty hard to be... A pacifist, as I've said, in this world, even on an island, when there is a particularly violent world, and the only reason you wouldn't get wiped out as a pacifist society, especially this dedicated to pacifism, is because they have this protective element, whether it's the god protecting them, whether it's just this strange quirk of nature that immune systems work a certain way, or a combination of, the, of both, which is kind of how I like to perceive it. It seems like a good way to imagine things in a fantasy world where these things are happening 
but it's uh it's it's for that reason it's unique though i mean there's i don't the, the lamb men of the lazarine are also fairly pacifistic but not to this degree but it is another person we think of um when we think of the whole what is life when you've you know what is life when you've lost everything around you that miriam Mazdur says this is kind of where Masande and Danny have both found themselves, even though Danny is uh, at least a, not responsible for that being inflicted on Mary Mazdur, but she didn't perceive it as an evil when it when it very much was. And there's an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation that really reminds me of this. There's an episode where they find a proto a human culture that's extremely primitive. And there's this like alien presence that protects them and enforces these really, really harsh laws. Like Wesley Crusher is playing catch and he falls into some plants and they're like, oh, well, you're going to be executed now. Yep. <laughs> he's like, they're like, wait, what? And, like, and they have the prime directive, so they're not allowed to interfere, but they can't just allow their crew member to be executed either. And like, well, what do we do here? So. Yeah, anyway, I'm not going to describe the whole episode, but <laughs> it's kind of like that where like if you don't there's this overwhelmingly powerful unexplained godlike being protecting these really happy, friendly, untouched like Garden of Eden style naive. Naive, yes, very naive, yeah. absolutely. You know, it reminds me a little bit of the time machine too, but but before I say that, there's a couple other thoughts that have been like stirring in me for a second here. The idea that it's really hard to be a pacifist in this world, it's it's it wouldn't be hard if everyone did it. It's only <laughs> hard because some people don't do it. It would be yeah. really easy to be a pacifist if everyone was a pacifist. That's true. Yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> that is always hard getting people on the same page. Mm-hmm. About in this world like or any world. But, yeah. Uh, another thought, too, just the idea of uh, it, there's a, c- a couple thoughts swirling in me that I, I don't know where to go with them exactly. But but just thinking about how there's just the, the Nazi people just have this one true God, which is different from most of the rest of, of Planetos culture. Yeah. Um, there are a couple exceptions, um, but, but I think even some of the other exceptions still like They're more acknowledge dualistic. other gods, even if they don't worship yeah. them, right? Even the other monotheistic um, religions like R'hllor has a great other, like it's actually two gods at war. As far as yeah. we know, there is no counterpart to the Lord of Harmony, like the Lord of Disharmony. Or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that's good but uh, yeah so i want to think about that for a second and also think i had this idea of maybe what kind of symbolic idea george potentially had whether he actually had it or had it but it evolved over time but but i don't know just think about the idea that maybe miss sunday is gonna come out of her cocoon at some point oh, you know like, oh, that's clever or maybe the or, or maybe her brother or the nazi people in general uh that you know maybe they'll bloom if you will into something bigger or more beautiful and maybe that could happen with their religion or their belief about mm. god and harmony also it seems too tertiary or tertiary <laughs> to to get that involved in the, the the central plot lines that are going on but um i don't know but but just a thought just a thought that you know, maybe maybe not the lord of harmony or the nathy people but maybe relore's idea of there being only one true god and it, the, yeah. the seven of westeros are going to fall and that will be sort of a a new blossom, you know, something that's in the cocoon is going to come out and fly over all the rest of everything. Um, but, um, so anyway, uh, sorry for that 
ramble. No, good. But uh, the, in the time machine, by the way, spoiler alert, in case you're about to read the time machine. Well, uh, I could just go back in time to before the, yeah. they heard this episode. <laughs> Uh, it, it was, it was so different than what I thought it was going to be. You know, I thought, you know, when I think of a time machine or maybe if I was going to write about a time machine, I would think about like going back in the past to change things or going to the future, see what's going to happen and coming back to the present for, to give a warning, whatever. But it, it really was, I, I realized it's more like a, uh, like a dystopian. It's, it's closer to like, you know, I don't know, 1984, brave new world or something. He goes way into the future. Like, hundreds of thousands of years oh. into the future <laughs> and i think there's some other like maybe at first he goes like two hours into the future and doesn't even realize that he did it you know there's some <laughs> tooling around but the crux of it is like hundreds of thousands of years into the future and the world has evolved at first it seems into this very pacifistic paradise naive culture where everyone they don't know how to read but they have plenty of food they only eat fruit no killing no meat mm, you know um but it turns out that there's this underground tribe of people who are who harvest the I think this the the Morlocks are underground and the Eloi or something are above ground and the, the the these darker this darker race underground provides for the upper race but then also they have to be sacrificed. Oh, it's and, like um, the, it's kind of like the Matrix then too, right? They're they're making everyone feel happy, but yeah, they're not really yeah. they're actually being harvested. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a similar, yeah, it's a similar trope. That makes sense. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Now I don't know if you have the same harvesting element going on in Nath, but the idea that they're this very pacifistic, they don't yeah. eat meat, but but there is this dark element mixed in there too. There is a dark element, yeah, with the the, the mm. disease and yeah, <laughs> and maybe more. But yeah, it is interesting that they don't seem to have like a. Like a devil figure, you know, there's no Satan equivalent. There's no storm god to their drowned god or great other to their relore. At least as far as we know, it's been a, pe a people that isn't super well explored. Like, for example, what is their what is their long night myth look like? Do they have one? They probably do. But we, you know, the, we're not really exposed to their myth cycles and their history uh, because of the, the difficulty in contacting their people and establishing relations and things like that. Yeah, we're probably lucky to have as much information as we do, given their basic nature, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's often interesting to compare in-world scholarly texts like the World of Ice and Fire to knowledge that's probably closer to the source, like in this quote, Danny speaking on what she's learned from Masande. Masande had told her of the Lord of Harmony, worshipped by the peaceful people of Nath. He was the only true god, her little scribe said, the god who always was and always would be who made the moon and stars and earth and all the creatures that dwelt upon them. Poor Lord of Harmony. Danny pitied him. It must be terrible to be alone for all time, attended by hordes of butterfly women you could make or unmake at a word. Well, pitying a god, that's a mood, isn't it? Like, <laughs> you gotta... Danny is is not a normal being, but I do get it. I'm not. That's not an insult. It's relatable to her, is the thing. It, exactly. She's which is it's not relatable to normal people, but to her it is. Like she's on top of a pyramid, looking down on Marine when she has this moment. So attended it is, by hordes of women. Uh, exactly. She has, she has her. her yeah. She has her her handmaids. She has Masande specifically, who is like exactly one of those beings because she's not the <laughs> would be one of the butterfly women's almost. Yeah. yeah so. Yeah, I'm not criticizing Danny. I think this is very understandable given her position in life and her lack of her own family history that she's got a direct connection to. She knows it's there and she's heard of it. Like the Targaryens are famous and all that, obviously, but she's disconnected from that on a personal level. 
So she fills a lot of these other things in. She's got to fill in that gap with other things. And yeah, like like Sean was smart to bring up before. Yeah, it's, this is her red door in a lot of ways. It's thinking about she's romanticizing someone else's lost childhood over hers. Um, partly because she doesn't know that much about her own. And I mean, this description sounds amazing. It sounds like, yeah, I'd love to go there where it's out of the way and people don't kill and there's songs and yeah danny seems to not be getting this butterfly part that you can't actually go there for very long like she just kind of <laughs> glosses over that when she's thinking about it <laughs> but hey you know she's daydreaming you're allowed to do that <laughs> so in real life pacifism isn't that uncommon in various scriptures though there's what's written and what people actually do of course there's always there's a lot of differences in what's written and what people actually do out in life the five precepts of buddhism include number one is a belief in not killing anything that breathes even you know plenty of buddhists don't do that there have been buddhist armies you know that's a thing is maybe that sounds like a oxymoron but you know if you go back in history that's been a thing obviously doesn't really align with their belief systems to do that but people have obviously uh, more egregiously gone against religious texts than that. It's not even that different from thou shalt not kill. It's not the first of the Ten Commandments. It's usually the fifth. The order kind of depends on which uh, version you look at. Either way, it's still, you know, in there. Uh, there's many versions of pacifism in, that aren't religious as well in the real life, in real life, but they tend to, the way the argument tends to fall is whether or not self-defense is okay. That tends to be where a lot of the crux of pacifism falls. Some versions of pacifism are like, yes, absolutely, self-defense is okay. Some versions of pacifism, like the Nazi version, is just no. Outright, no form of violence is okay, no matter what. Not even self-defense. Almost all versions of real-life pacifists agree that serving in any sort of military is goes against their beliefs because almost no military is purely defensive and even in that sense you you lose your ability to make decisions on your own and it's your individual choice that enables it to stay that way another criticism one of the, one of the arguments against pacifism of course is that it's isn't it better to have thousands die to prevent the death of millions it's like on pure math it's like yeah i, I guess so but what kind of long term are we talking about? You know, that's, that's yeah. How sure are you that you will be saving millions? That it will only be thousands that die. It's a slippery yeah. slope, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you know, um, you know, Gandhi had his own kind of awkward and distasteful at best <laughs> uh, elements, but but his idea of pacifism was it no even and not in self defense. His idea yeah, was, he was it absolute pacifist. Yeah, fu fundamentally, in the end, humans are good. And that if you just literally let someone beat you to death, the person beating you to death eventually will realize they're doing something wrong. And if they don't, the rest of culture will, and they will stop it from happening. He was kind of right. Like the, the, the British soldiers literally opened machine guns on people sitting down and massacred hundreds of people. And then the rest of the world was like, okay, that's it. You can't do that anymore. And England's like, yep, you're right. We can't believe we did that. You can be independent now. We're getting out of here. You know, that it, it took a terrible sacrifice, but it, it, the, the basic pure pacifism did work for, for the benefit of a billion people, you know. Mm -hmm. And of course, India is a very Hindu country. And one version of Hindu is Jainism. And that's the most similar that I could find to the belief system of the peaceful people of the Nathi, because Jainism is 
pure, no harm to anything. No harm to animals, no harm to people, nothing that leads to violence indirectly. Not necessarily vegan, because you're allowed to have milk from an animal if the animal wasn't harmed. But you, they may find themselves having to choose veganism in order to avoid harm to animals, because a lot of times it's hard to, in the real world, get products from animals that don't involve harming them. They don't even, by the way, eat root vegetables because you have to, to kill the whole plant. You have to like uproot the whole plant and kill it. So you can eat the berries and apples off a tree or whatever and not kill it. But if you pull up the potato from the earth, you kill the whole thing. They don't even want to do that. Yep, you're totally right. Yeah, so that's that's absolute pacifism. And that I would, would guess is the best model we have for the Nathi in the real world. There's something like four to five million Jainists in the world right now. Uh, the Amish... A Quaker would maybe be the closest, like, American versions of that. Um, but I think even Quakers believe in self-defense. Uh, I think Amish do as well. But very limited. Uh, they're, they're, pretty, they're not as, quite as pacifist as the Janus. Are Amish and Quakers but... vegetarian? Did I not know that? Uh, I think I some of them are, so. but I don't think so. I think they... Uh, okay. I, I, no, I don't think they're... Hmm, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I think they eat animal. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. I wish I knew a little better. Some some definitely don't. There are definitely vegetarian Christian sects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those tend to be the pacifistic ones. So, yeah. Like, Sean and I have a mutual friend from a long way back who is a a vegan advocate for Christians. He's a super Christian guy who also thinks that all Christians should be vegan. So, he he believes scripture should be interpreted that way. Uh, Not a lot of people agree, but, hey, it's, it's a valid point as far as I'm concerned. I, I do know uh, a fundamental difference between Amish and Quakers. Amish are very much about following the scripture. They they very much want to try to follow. Now, the scripture has a lot of contradictions, so I don't know quite how they handle it. But I believe Quakers are a little bit more like try to figure out the right thing, like follow your inner goodness. You yeah. know, and, and mm-hmm. hopefully that lines up with scripture. But fundamentally, you got to do what you believe is right. Modern so- Quakers actually aren't all Christian anymore. They mm-hmm. cite other religious texts like there's there's a famous, qu- famous, quote unquote, famous Quaker who cites f- uh, uh, from the Quran quite a bit. Because, yeah, it's, it's more because you're because that fits in what you're saying. They care more about good than what people wrote down in the past. You know, it's just, well, what is good is what's good. That doesn't, you know, <laughs> you don't need necessarily need a book to tell you that. So they don't want to rely on scripture for that. So, the, yeah, I, I went to a Quaker school when I was in first grade. So let's talk about the. Uh, Let's get into the academics a little bit here. Someone does suspect the butterfly, a certain Archmaester, quote. Archmaester Ebros, who has made a study of all known accounts of the affliction, believes that it is spread by the butterflies that the peaceful people revere. For this reason, the disease is oft called butterfly fever. Some believe the fever is carried only by one particular sort of butterfly, a large black and white variety with wings as big as a man's hand is favored by Ebros, but this remains conjecture. Whether the butterflies of Noth are true handmaids of the Lord of Harmony, or no more than common insects like their cousins in the Seven Kingdoms, it may well be that the Nothi are not wrong in regarding them as guardians. So someone does suspect the butterfly. Glad to see that. Someone figured it out. No, none of this butterfly propaganda getting around. I'm picturing mindset butterfly being like, ye bro. <laughs> no, it wasn't the butterfly. It was the butterfly. Yeah, it was the butterfly. Sure. <laughs> 
Yeah. So it's a nasty disease. It it's brutal and it just yeah, like you said, Sean, it's it's something that's a little out of sync with all the rest of the vibe of this island because it's just so gross sounding. For example, here's the quote that describes just that. Fever is the first sign of this plague, followed by painful spasms that make it seem as if victims are dancing wildly and uncontrollably. In the last stage, the afflicted sweat blood and their flesh sloughs from their bones. What the hell? You know, the dance, you know, the, the chill dancing disease yeah. where the, the flesh just comes off your bones. How does that how does how does dancing Sean feel about yeah. this? I would rather do a different dance. <laughs> you know, I'm not being serious when I say this, but low key reason Masan to be like, you know what, maybe my immunity isn't has waned since yeah. I'm not there amongst the butterflies and I don't know if I should go back. We don't understand how it works. It's it's very possibly just a real world thing, you know, like a nature, natural disease that's transmitted. Now, that would be a little outside of what we know about butterflies. In the real world, butterflies can transmit diseases not to people, though. They can carry diseases, but they can't transmit them to humans. There's no vector for, like, butterflies can't bite you. <laughs> but they can carry parasites like any living thing. Any living thing can carry parasites, basically. But, yeah, they're not like fleas or ticks or mosquitoes or... Any number of insects that can bite people or other animals and spread diseases. So that is why it might be magical. Maybe. A lot of times parasites are pretty uh, specially evolved. Like a parasite, for one thing, isn't necessarily going to be able to be parasitical to another thing. That's I don't true, know. Yeah. I haven't studied butterfly parasites exactly. But uh, uh, another thing about butterflies is they, they can be poisonous. Like in real life, there are. There are several poisonous uh, species or whatever, but there's a difference between like, you know, if you eat it and you get sick to your stomach, then if you're on an island where they exist, your skin falls off. You know, yeah. there's, a, there's a range of what poisonous means, uh, but, uh, but, but apparently they, it's, some butterflies can eat, I, I guess they eat maybe others, but like milkweed, which is poisonous, but the butterfly itself has, is able to like, I don't know, compartmentalize the toxin so it doesn't poison itself. But if something else eats the butterfly, then they get the poison. And there are colorful patterns, often in nature, colorful patterns like a warning of poison. So the predators know I'm not going to eat that butterfly because it's poisonous. Mm. So... But again, it's, it doesn't, it seems like that's easy to avoid. This doesn't seem like the people, especially if it's kind of known as the butterfly disease, I can't imagine people land on Nath and eat the butterflies for three days and then get sick and don't understand what happened, you know? So. <laughs> I'm not sure why they'd be eating the butterflies at all, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, because especially if you're from somewhere else, like this, there's probably plenty of animals roaming around because you know the Nathy aren't eating them. <laughs> Yeah, just go fishing. The fish are like the fish probably swim right up to you. They don't know better. <laughs> the birds. Of fruit anyway. Yeah, yeah why bother killing the animals? You got yeah. this fruit hanging there. Yeah, I am once again we reminded of George R. R. Martin's story and Seven Times Never Kill Man. We've referred to it many times because it just keeps being a good reference point. The Jane She are the peaceful race in that setting. They're absolute pacifists as well, even when their like religious altars are being destroyed, their gods are being destroyed. But their their long term innate sort of mysterious defense ends up working out and converting the attackers to something else and kind of neutralizing them in the very long term. In the meantime, a lot of their people get slaughtered. 
but in the long term, the bad guys are defeated, ba- basically like here. Nothing stops the bad guys from coming back, and nothing stops this, the immediate slaughter of their people. But in the long term, there is that karma, you know? I think it's in that Children of the Forest episode where we talk about that. There's also one more real-world thing I want to throw out here before we go to our, our mid-roll, which is the Dancing Plague of 1518, a mysterious occurrence that is pretty well documented by sources in the city of Strasbourg, Lady Trofea, a woman named Lady Orga. She would have been Frau Trofea because this is Germany. She just started dancing one day in the square and danced for like a week. And other people started joining in. Up to from somewhere from between fifty and four hundred people danced with her for weeks. Some there are some claims that people died, many people died, but those are mostly the later sources that may have been in later embellishment. But there's no good explanation for this. There is a abundant evidence that this happened to some degree, and b no good explanation for why. It's like mass hysteria, some strange undocumented disease. Mushrooms got in the water. Mushrooms got... You know what, though? Very suspiciously. I read a lot of possible explanations for this. Nobody suspects the butterfly. (laughs) What? (laughs) Not one! Like, hello! (laughs) Gosh. Hmm. (laughs) Ah, those Strasburgers not thinking correctly. I'm never more grateful for our Patreon community than when we do episodes like this, the ones that are extremely obscure. We we really couldn't, if we were trying solely to court advertisers, we really would not be doing episodes like this at <laughs> all. Too obscure. We can't go showing the download numbers on this episode to someone and be like, look at the numbers on this one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not going to be as high as you know, like a main a down the middle topic, like something about the main series or a TV show, House of the Dragon or Game of Thrones. So, yeah. So I'm thankful to those of you who support us in all the different ways you can support us. Whenever we do an episode like this, that comes to mind for me. So let's talk some history such that it is because we don't have a lot of history on it. As we said, they don't have their own stories and lore. How even they keep history is a mystery to us if they do at all. But we have outside stories and anecdotes here and there. Here's Danny thinking of what she's learned from Masande. One day, she hoped to see this fabled Isle of Nath. Masande said the peaceful people made music instead of war. They did not kill, not even animals. They ate only fruit and never flesh. The butterfly spirits, sacred to their Lord of Harmony, protected their isle against those who would do them harm. Many conquerors had sailed on Noth to blood their swords, only to sicken and die. The butterflies do not help them when the slave ships come raiding, though. Yeah, and that's an important consideration, an important reality, something that Danny can't help but notice, especially given her position. Remember, we're talking, this is the same part of the book, when she's atop the pyramid, feeling lonely and godlike, and trying to balance all that and still be a human. And while bonding with Masande over these unusual uh, traumatic things from their past. So she can't help but notice that, yes, even though the the butterfly god has his revenge, so to speak, on the people that come to raid the isle, it doesn't actually stop them from doing it. And they keep coming back. So it is kind of a romanticized ideal. You know, she's daydreaming, as we said in the first half. 
sort of hoping, but I think a part of her realizes that this isn't really in her future, <laughs> that it's not very likely to happen. And as things get realer and realer for her throughout the story, as she gets to Westeros and is confronted with the enemies that are just names to her, let alone the ones that she isn't fully aware of, like the Others and the, the Army of the Dead, the dream of a place like Nath or the Red Door will be even less realistic. And it's already pretty unrealistic given all her responsibilities and the swirl of everything she's caught up in. So, you know, even if it was realistic, it's probably not what she thinks, you know, like, uh, I, I think this a lot of times the good old days are the old days are always the good old days, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and even what Masande knows, as we said, it might be a little romanticized because her only perspective of it is as a five-year-old and or four-year-old, however old she was. And from maybe what little she's talked to her brothers who are a little older than her, but they've been through unsullied training. I mean, they've been horribly traumatized and changed. They they might still have memories of it, but they would have been conditioned to forget their past as much as possible as part of that brutal conditioning. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So when... I brought this up before. What about Yin? Did they ever trade with Yin in the super ancient past? Or what about Gagasos? See, it's a bit of an irony that... Noth is in worse shape after the Dune. Even though the Valyrians were such big slavers and the Nathi make, quote-unquote, the best slaves, well, it seems that the Valyrians maybe didn't see it quite that way because they might have valued the products, the produce of Noth, more than just enslaving yet another race because, well, we mentioned the silk, right? That's something that the elite Valyrians would value more than... Not more than any slave, but they have so many slaves from all over the world. I mean, they're just a massive slaving empire. This tiny island can't be that big a source of manpower. But if it's the best silk in the world, yeah, the elite would value that more, right? It's, it's rarer. It's more, it's a more prestige of a good than just one other type of slave. Uh, same thing goes for some of those handcrafts and rare wines. That Ironically, Valyria may have valued those goods more than what we're seeing now in the post-Doom era, where it's just back to just more brutal, straightforward slavery that we get from, well, the slaver cities of old geese that are in their rebound phase over the last several hundred years in the post-Doom era. Of course, Marine and Yunkai and Astapor I'm mostly referring to. But also places like Volantis. So... The basilisks may have been more tightly controlled when Gagasos was the big power in that region. Uh, an actual Valyrian city ruled by probably Archons, indirectly ruled by dragon lords, 
well, yeah, there would have been less piracy in that era, and certainly would have been some. But now we're in an era where just a bunch. Of, it's a big free for all. It's a big Wild West anarchy situation, which is not good for the peaceful Isle of Nath. So we do have some of this POV from other cultures who attempted to go there. A variety of things were tried, none of which really addressed the root cause of why you shouldn't go there in the first place. Quote. The Giscari seized the island thrice in the days of the old empire. The Valyrians erected a fort there whose walls of fused dragonstone can still be seen. A company of Valentine adventurers once built a trade town, complete with timber palisades and slave pens. Corsairs from the Basilisk Isles have landed on Noth countless times. Yet, none of these invaders survived, and the Nothi claim that none lasted more than a year, for some evil humor lurks in the very air of this fair isle, and all those who linger too long on Noth soon succumb. Fortress of the Fused Dragonstone. There's not many of these in the world that we know of, so it's, it's peculiar that they built one here. Do you think any Nothi live there? I wonder. I'm guessing no, because like, it was probably built on the coast, and we know yeah. that they have since shunned the coasts post-Doom to avoid the slavers. So I would yeah. think maybe they lived there before this became a problem, because the Valyrians would have abandoned it long before the Doom. And maybe they would or should live there because it's defensible, but they don't want to defend. They don't even want to defend themselves against, so they just leave and go where it's harder to be found. Yeah. I could see them completely shunning the place because it's got beasts like Dragonstone carved into it or just because of they don't like it. They're just like, yuck, that place belonged to them. And who knows what weird sorceries they use. Just they're against it what it represents and they don't need it so they're not going to use it this is, these aren't a people that seem like they're looking to get ahead you know <laughs> they're looking to exist and, and be at peace or maybe it's a hint that they're not as absolutely pacifistic as we thought maybe they did do defend themselves maybe there's a 10 percent of them are like we're going to take up arms what are the other 90% going to do about that besides social consequences? I mean, they're, 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 which could be severe. You know, there's a lot of, like you said, in, in India, long term, the shunning and the, the worldview helped mattered. Maybe that 10% just couldn't stand up to the weight of the shame from their ancestors and their, their elders. But, you know, maybe it lasted for several years. Who knows? Also, like, what difference does this social shame matter if you're dead or they're dead anyway? Like, I I can see some contingency of them deciding this is the best way or we have no choice or whatever. But it still seems like, it still seems weird that such, I don't know, large, elaborate, whatever structures could have been built. That they would have had to, like, build them quickly to not die from doing it. Which means they kind of had to have had a plan for it in the first place. I wonder if maybe it wasn't so much that they wanted to build this to defend against the Nazi that might have tried to fight back despite their general nature, maybe to fight off other invading forces. Maybe like we're going to get a foothold on this island and get control of their silkworms and we don't want these other pirates taking it from us. But they maybe they even naively thought they'd be safe inside a Dragonstone structure or it seems it. There's a lot about this that seems unusual to me. I definitely agree with you, Sean. I li- some of the same thoughts that you're expressing are similar to some of the ones I've had. Like if we, again, use the example of Gagasos, 
That was one. That was originally Gorgai, uh, which was built by the Gascari, and the Valyrians took it. So you can see, yeah, and this isn't far from the Basilisk Isles, the theater of war in one of the many, if not multiple, of the Valyrian Gascari wars, included Sothorios, which is because they were both getting resources from there to use in their greater overall war efforts. So now it's hard to see Nath as a valued source of wartime goods <laughs> but wealth okay yeah there is they're definitely generating you can definitely gener generate money from it so there is that so maybe more of a mercantile type conflict rather than a, a military one but i could see maybe someone it's, it, maybe it had some strategic positioning but from a trade standpoint or military standpoint mm. and maybe combine with that some naivete or foolishness like they literally just didn't know the rumors so you know you can imagine maybe some some foreign pirate that came to this area saw the potential you know found some fortune and said hey why is no one building anything in this island let's go do it but it still seems like to have done it to the extent that they did and they would have had to do it quickly it seems like that sort of planning wouldn't have come from someone that was completely naive they, yeah. Does that make sense? It's it still doesn't totally add up to me. So. Okay, so a couple more theories I have here and a couple more considerations which color the theory somewhat. Okay, so we have the Valyrians. The Dragon Lords uh have probably a greater resistance to disease. Not this one apparently, or maybe they do, and we just don't know. It's not exactly the individual cases aren't exactly well documented. We don't have a lot of we don't have any But like maybe data right maybe there. they could survive for a 10 or longer. 15 days instead of two or three days and that might be enough to build a structure you know well we're told it takes up to a year for people to start dying from it so maybe that's that might be part of the buffer there might be part of what causes people's disbelief and we're like yeah see i've been here for weeks and i've been fine mm. you know and and you're right they might have tried other methods like well we just kill all the butterflies that come near us just you know we use sorcery or flames or something to keep all the butterflies away and we're fine and they use locals to do a lot of the labor. So the labor force building the walls maybe is, you know, not, it doesn't put them as much risk. They don't have to import other laborers who would just die as well. Or if they do, they don't care because they don't care what happens to their slaves because they're huge jerks. <laughs> or the wall building is faster than we think because it's this fused dragonstone thing, which implies a magical process or some sort of technological process that we don't fully understand. Proto-magical. So that might be quicker than we think. It might also might be a really small fort. <laughs> it might not be yeah, that big. Yeah. You know, it might be like a, a 50 person enclave or something, but uh, it may, they may have planned it being larger and just everybody died, so they stopped. <laughs> it says fort. It might Im mean incomplete fort, <laughs> partially yeah. Big fort. Yeah. It could also, I suppose, it could be other things too, like uh, maybe it wanes, maybe different. Mm seasons especially since seasons can last for years yeah, maybe maybe in the the winter or the summer the the death doesn't happen or doesn't happen as quickly or, you know. well we are we seem to be in a tropical region so there may not be as much of a distinction between winter and summer but still there, you, you're right and i think you're on the right track for there can still be magical seasons like the comet yeah. coming or something like that Absolutely. that in this certain time period they got away with it and yeah but i almost understand why they kept trying for one things, like, if the Valyrians learned about the butterfly sickness, they're not going to go tell the Gascari and vice versa. They don't have, you know, they're, these are enemies. 
Uh, and it does. It does sound kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? To the butterfly. Again, the Simpsons reference the butterfly. No one <laughs> believes it's the butterflies. Come on, the butterfly. It's like uh, the Holy Grail. Like, yeah. don't go in that cave. It's a monster. It's huge. Fangs. Yeah, it's, it's like a <laughs> Those butterflies will get you. Like, we're yeah. not worried about the butterflies. I mean, if you yeah. have been worried about the butterflies, because, <laughs> yeah, if you're some bold adventurer and if you heard of a place where everyone was completely nonviolent, had golden eyes and a butterfly god protected them, you wouldn't believe like any of that. <laughs> you would think all of it was exaggerated or at least uh, not entirely true, you know, embellished or truth whatever. Or, yeah. So and again, yeah, but they'd be wrong. They're just underestimating the butterfly. But again, so this, like you said, this is peculiar. A, the fact that they tried, the fact that they went through so much. Again, that, I could not have done all that just for some a few extra slaves. It just doesn't stack. Even though, even again, they're the best slaves. They'd have to be so amazingly better than all the other people to justify it. Unless, so again, I suspect it's the trade goods. Some, the great value that they were finding here in, in mercantilism is more the thing that matters to them or in, in non-human capital. Yeah. Kind of, kind of following up on what you were saying earlier from a, you know, a very cold, very evil standpoint. If there, you know, if you just don't care about the value of life or culture and there is a, a, a tribe in the jungle and they're just sustaining themselves, right? They're, they're generating food. They're singing songs to each other. You know, they may be a happy people in a happy culture, but they're not generating some trade good that you can take and go sell somewhere, take them all as slaves. But if you find some culture that's generating wine and silk, if you take them all as slaves, well, that's it. But if you come back every year and get their wine and silks, it, that's more valuable than just taking them all as slaves as once. So that you can see how maybe the pirates might have treated that island differently, aside from the butterfly death, you know. Right. Exactly like what Danny is taught about the Dothraki. She's like, why don't the Dothraki attack the slave cities? It's like, well, because then who would they sell their slaves to? They need the markets. They don't want to destroy the marketplaces, you know. Uh, they'll, they'll destroy pretty much anything else, but they need a place to sell. Their it's like even criminals won't rob their one fence, right? Because that's who they sell yeah. all their stolen goods to. Like, well, they're screwed without that outlet. So, yeah. Even evil kind of warmongering argument. people still value a certain level of stability and consistency or whatever. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't other like it wasn't drug dealers who brought down the Silk Road online Silk Road. Was, yeah. Was, yeah. You know, FBI or whatever. <laughs> OK, let's uh, move on a little bit. Here's another people that came on the aisle for once. They came in peace. Quote. For the next three years, the Roinar wandered the southern seas seeking a new home on Nah the Isle of Butterflies, the peaceful people gave them welcome, but the god that protects that strange land began to strike down the newcomers by the score with a nameless mortal illness, driving them back to their ships. So, I gotta wonder how this played out. Like, did they not warn them? I mean, I guess they no. couldn't maybe communicate with each other, be like pointing at the, the, the not through point of the butterflies and being like, and Point the writer's you, like, yeah, like, very beautiful. I agree. Like, yeah, those are beautiful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah <really laughs> butterfly cool. necklaces? Okay, yeah, we'll yeah. make butterfly necklaces. Butterfly yeah. necklaces. Great yeah, idea. put them close yeah. to our skin. We'll let them, put them yeah. right here. 
So this was, of course, after the Roinar and Imeria led her people away from Sothorios and the Basilisk Isles. The, the entire group vanished from Yeen and all that other stuff. So clearly the Lord of Harmony, the butterfly sickness, makes no distinction between friendly and slaver. I mean, we're not, obviously, maybe not every single Roinar was friendly, but it sounds like Nymeria was looking for a home and didn't antagonize anyone over much, but... You know, who knows what's going to offend a culture like this so extremely pacifistic and different. The Roinar had been through a lot. I mean, I see them as good guys compared to the Valyrians, but I don't know that you can just say they're good guys. You know, they they were, they had soldiers and, and wars as well. Not that all soldiers are bad, obviously. I'm just saying their values would be a lot different than the Nathi, even coming in peace, right? You know, you remind me of another thought I had earlier that I was resistant to even uh, put out there because I'm trying to think of the Nazi as being positive. I'm so excited about the idea of their pacifism to the point of not even eating meat. But um, but that still doesn't necessarily mean they're good. They're, you can do evil things without being violent, you know, oh, yeah. or even if not straight up evil, you could still be mean or inappropriate, even if you're not violent. So yeah. it might be a little much for us to assume the Nazi are all pure good. You know? Yeah. So eventually the Roinar, you know, it says they fled to their ships and moved on. They next went to the Summer Isles where they had to leave because the place the Summer Isles Islanders allowed them to settle wasn't fertile enough for them to make a scratch out of living. And that's what led them to Dorne, right? But you wonder what they, the stories they would have told of Nath. I wonder if this is where some of the knowledge of Nath came from in Westeros because this these people eventually migrated to Dorne and that's Westeros, right? So the knowledge of, of Nath is very limited in Westeros, and some of it may have been seeded by the Roinar actually going there some 600 years ago. We're not entirely clear on that timeline, but it's in the hundreds, not thousands. So, yeah, interesting possibility, interesting little indirect connection to Westeros would be the Roinar passing through there. Because certainly, Westerosi knowledge about it isn't likely to have originated as much from the Giscari or the Valyrians, right? I mean, that's, a lot of that's... Is too far or far gone in the case of it being blown up. <laughs> or in just different languages, right? Whereas the Roinar eventually were learning common and writing stuff down and passing it on to maesters. You see what I'm saying? So given in their popularity among slavers, it's no surprise that amongst the many, many races that were there for the founding of Bravos, the Nathi were included. So they are... In that group, uh, we don't have anything special to say about that. Just thought it was worth mentioning. It's kind of cool little world building tidbit. Now I, you can tell that they were involved in the founding of Bravos. Why is that? Bravos. <laughs> the double A. <laughs> that was their contribution. <laughs> they, they, they named it just Bravos with the one A, and the Nazi representative was like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait! I don't really feel represented here. This doesn't feel like home to me." And they said, oh, I have an idea. We agree with your position on on being very anti-slaver. <laughs> Slavery, however. We have one. A's for our taste. <laughs> for our taste. We're not, it's a very small change. <laughs> They're like, you got, the, the Nazi just want an A added. And they're like, what? Like, okay, give it to them, I guess. <laughs> You know, that's that's where the fawns would be from. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's this quote. 
Sad to say, the corsairs who prowl the seas around Noth long ago learned that the chances of dying of butterfly fever were low so long as they did not remain upon the island for more than a few hours, and lower still if they only came ashore at night, for butterflies are creatures of the day and love the morning dew and the afternoon sun. Thus it is that slavers from the Basilisk Isles oft descend upon Noth during the dark of night to carry off whole villages into bondage. So it sounds like they're learning. Unfortunately, all this 400 years in the post-Valyrian era, these slavers from the Basilisk Isles that are a recurring thing have passed down this knowledge, and this is like evil slaver knowledge, the kind of stuff we see all over the slave cities where they learn the weaknesses and tricks of the trade that are used to exploit humanity in some of the worst ways we can imagine and this is basically from that same overall playbook figuring out when the best time to do evil is it's almost simple when you break it down this way like yeah just go at night and of course in some ways attacking at night gives them even more advantages but mm, yeah it makes sense that the nearby slavers would be the ones that figured that out you know the regional knowledge rather than the ones coming from far away they would be less likely to know that. Here's another quote related to this. The peaceful people always bring good prices, it is said, for they are as clever as they are gentle, fair to look upon, and quick to learn obedience. It is reported that one pillow house on lease is famed for its naughty girls, who are clad in diaphanous silken gowns and adorned with gaily painted butterfly wings. Such raids have become so frequent since the century of blood that the peaceful people have largely abandoned their own shores, moving inland to the hills and forests, where it is harder for the slavers to find them. Thus, the fine handicrafts, shimmering silks, and delicate spiced wines of the Isle of Butterflies are seen less and less in the markets of the Seven Kingdoms and the Nine Free Cities. So again, this... It points to the Valyrians being more savvy about this. Clearly, they were not inflicting this level of slavery and devastation. I'm not giving them credit for being good guys, obviously. They're still a country run on slavery, and they were probably still taking some Nathi slaves, just not to this degree. So a degree of cynicism is warranted here. They just saw it as an opportunity, like an accounting problem. Like, what's the maximum amount of harm we can inflict without damaging the industries we value even more. So they want to get the most amount of slaves and the most amount of wine and silk and all that other stuff. They were probably just more savvy about it, where these different pirate enclaves just more like smash-and-grab operations. I mean, those shimmering silks that are described, I mean, these these might be literally the finest in the world. It's entirely possible, which you could understand given the the value of silk in the real world. I mean, the Silk Road, I was joking before about the Silk Road website, but that, of course, was named after the real Silk Road, a thing that ran from China all the way to, effectively, to Europe through uh, the Middle East and Arabia. And they jealously and fiercely protected the secret of making silk. Like, you could not sneak a silkworm out. They would search you... Like, every inch of your body, if you were leaving and they are like, suspected you of having a silkworm. Like, one guy smuggled them out, out of a, in a cane or something like that, finally. And 
Yeah, like, <laughs> this is, it's so valuable still. I mean, it's the clothing of the elite, <laughs> right? <laughs> the thing that rich people are willing to pay the most for, the, the top of the heap for clothing in the entire world. And it's probably true for this world as well. So you, if you're imagining how much it costs, aim higher. Because <laughs> we're not only talking the finest substance, we're talking with the finest version of the finest substance. It's like not just silk, but the best silk. Yeah, you know how they love to show off. They get to because not it's not just having it; it's being able to show it off to everybody else. Being like, I've got Nathi silk, you know, so much of it. And like, oh, he's got. And although rich people would know what that means, you know, like, oh, Nathi silk. They they know exactly how expensive that is. Yeah, so. It wouldn't be as fancy to other people. I don't know. They're not in the market for silk. There's like rich people talking about their best, their favorite watches. Like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know which ones are fancier than others. <laughs> Something to be said for both the scarcity, in addition to how fine it is, but the scarcity, you know, adds to the value. Yeah. And the, uh, I don't know how to say it, the, the risk involved, right? The, the fact that lives are lost or potentially lost to get this one makes it actually more rare, but also makes it more of a story, more of a prestige thing to have, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's almost like it's almost a joke or an irony. If we could return to Jorah explaining to Danny why the Dothraki don't destroy the slaves. He's like, well, then they wouldn't have a place to sell their slaves. So Danny's like, no place to sell your slaves, you say. <laughs> She's like, that's, that sounds like a good thing, you know? She's like, well, maybe that's the path that we should be taking here. So it's almost like Jorah's telling her why it doesn't work. And to her, it's like a blueprint It's or foreshadowing. If you want to see, if you want to imagine that Danny will smash the slave trade, which I think a lot of us are really hoping for, that would be great. It'd be very heroic. I mean, the fist pumping we would get, I mean, as awesome as it was when she freed those unsullied and pulled that trick, like that was like 9,000 people. Cause yeah, 8,000 unsullied plus some of the younger ones and then freeing the city itself <laughs> beyond that. So it, it did extend, extend beyond them. But imagine that on a much larger scale. So yeah, it's a thing to root for. But yeah, um, she might be willing to smash the entire... She's like, well, I'll smash every slave market. If I got to break every single one, then I'll do that. Let's talk about some specific characters. There's not many, but we do have a few. Missandei, of course, is the first one that comes to mind. But honestly... There's enough about her, especially mixed in theories, which we, of course, would do. We'll do a, an episode on her standalone one day. Uh, just real quickly, though, book for show Masande is one of the bigger changes. The show maintained her role as Danny's close confidant and kind of ma- and kind of made her her only close confidant. It was the law of conservation of characters, in essence, there in effect, full effect. That I got rid of Eerie and Jiki and the Blood Riders and everyone, you know, except for. Jorah and Barristan, who also kind of died and weren't there. So, yeah, Masande was by far the top. I mean, Grey Worm, too, I guess, to a lesser extent. But Masande was way number one there. And so, yeah, Masande's like, book version, which obviously we care about way more, is about the same age as Arya and Shireen, just for comparison. Five years younger than Danny, roughly. By the way, about the same age as Egg from the Duncan Egg series. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's a good point. We get at least when we first meet Egg, you know, obviously, yeah. you see later older versions of Egg down the line, but <laughs> we get a pretty brutal example of nature versus nurture when we learn that Masande had three brothers. Most likely, they were all captured at the same time, maybe from the same village. There may have been some other people from her village that were all captured, like with them, because of what it says. They target individual villages 
and try to get out as quickly as possible because they're aware of the butterfly fever. So it makes sense that she was captured alongside people she knew. So she's 10 now, as we said, and her brothers were older than her. And we know that that unsullied training starts as young as five and that they're fully trained now and it takes several years. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of the timeline here. One of them died in that training to be unsullied. The other two made it through, which it's a it's an odd conundrum. Like on one hand, they're supposedly really obedient, but they're also really peaceful. And it's one of their few like overarching values as a as a people, because you can understand why they might be coerced or argued into or forced into doing things, but they won't even defend themselves. Like that's something that's not a passive thing. You have to, you know, you have to work at, it's almost like takes bravery to be that dedicated to pacifism. You know, I mean, not almost it does, but it's just a different mindset. It's hard to, maybe you can frame it differently. And maybe I even lack the words or, certainly perspective to explain it properly but i think you kind of see where i'm coming from at least to at least somewhat still though they i feel like they were probably young enough to have not fully had the yeah that cultural ideal ingrained in them yet you know even if it was it would get overridden by the type of training and mutilation and everything else that came with slavery and the unsullied yeah so Given that they're freed, it's interesting to see some small differences. It's real under-the-radar stuff, I think, with the Unsullied. A lot of it's yet to play out, and I think we'll see more of it. The show just didn't delve into it much at all, which is not surprising. Uh, But both of the brothers, Grey Worm takes the name Grey Worm. He's like, that's the name I had on the day you freed me, and that's very symbolic to me. It's got a lot of meaning. But both of Masande's brothers take their given names back. They return to their original names, which says a little something to me. And that means, you know, there's a little bit of connection, at least at least a little bit of connection to their heritage, to their origin. And that makes a little sense to me as well, because they're older than Masande. They would have more memories of their upbringing, of their home. You know? Unfortunately, Masador, one of the two brothers, was killed by the Sons of the Harpy amongst those many terroristic murders that were happening uh, before she married his dar. He was crushed by falling stones. And here's a quote. He taught me how to climb a tree when we were little. He could catch fish with his hands. Once I found him sleeping in our garden with a hundred butterflies crawling over him. He looked so beautiful that morning, this one. I mean, I loved him. So... Catching fish is an interesting little tidbit there because they don't eat flesh. Is he just catching them for fun or are they pescatarian maybe? Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe they are pescatarian, but maybe he is just catching them for fun. Yeah, just just for practice, just for agility. You know, he lets them go afterwards. Yeah. That's kind of where my headcanon is because I don't, I don't know, this isn't like... That's meat. I mean, <laughs> you yeah, know, I know a lot. I like the distinction is made. Certainly flesh, you know, yeah. they, so, yeah. And that, you're right. They say flesh, not meat. They never said, uh, I mean, technically you could call the, 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 the flesh of a fruit is flesh, I suppose. <laughs> like, some people call that flesh. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but also, I wonder their stance on pets. Okay, yeah. They you could know, maybe like, stock little ponds with fish as pets or something like, would, like would that. that okay. Or to free them. them. Maybe they were caught yeah. in a tide pool and they free them and <laughs> put them back in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. <laughs> this character, Masador, was named 
in the song Characters We Don't Know by the band Danny and the Targaryens. We love them. Are you going to sing this for us, Aziz? Okay, sure. Okay, here's how the line, here's how the song goes. It's conveniently in the first verse of the song. I'm a big fan of the Game of Thrones, but there's so many characters I don't know. So listen up as you drink your beer. Here's a tribute for all to hear. There's a little guy who can be seen by Khaleesi out in Old Marine. Looks like Grey Worm, slightly bald. Masador is what he's called. Yay. <laughs> Applause for his beautiful singing. You can hear that song on Spotify if you want. I'm sure it's available in other places like YouTube, but that's certainly where I uh, reminded myself of the lyrics. <laughs> it's worth checking out all of the Danny and Targaryen songs. I think they have at least two albums, right? They have yeah. two studio albums and a live album. This is from the live album. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah they're great. We've seen them they're, live. Yeah. They're, they're very good. Yes, absolutely. Three thumbs up from us, or six thumbs what? up. All of our say, thumbs. Yeah, I was like, seven. 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 <laughs> oh my gosh. Going over the top. Yeah. I'm just picturing like Sean's door opens and Rita's hand pops in. <laughs> so Marcellin is the other surviving of Visande's brothers. Three companies of freedmen sell swords effectively, but not really sell swords because they have sworn themselves to Danny, formed in the wake of the fall of Marine and her freeing Unsullied. Marcellin isn't an Unsullied anymore. He left, clearly, because he's now leading this company of freedmen. So that's really interesting. It's another sign of reclaiming his individuality, a little bit different than Grey Worm, but still similar because he's still dedicated to Danny. I mean, the group is called the Mother's Men, and obviously that's the mother in reference is her. Uh, so, but also another example of their excellence. He's a little bit more of his, he retains a little bit more of his individuality, maybe. And he's named captain, like he's elected captain, like they nominate him. So another outstanding figure from Nath. Maybe for story reasons, but, well, cynical to say, perhaps. But, again, maybe that's why the, the slavers like the Nazis so much. They're, they really are maybe exceptionally talented or just better at stuff for some reason. And, again, referring to the fact that they tend to raid whole villages and things like that, there's probably other Nazi amongst the 8,000 Unsullied. There's probably a few other survivors Hard to imagine that Nasande's brothers are the only ones that made it through training. Maybe some of them are in that same company. Maybe some of them will get names later or get referred to. Because if this one's becoming a little more individual, why not a few others, you know? George doesn't stint on uh, the side characters, as we know. And I think there's a little more opportunity as the Unsullied and the former Unsullied go to Westeros and have more interactions with Westerosi. There's more, it, there's no, definitely more opportunity for some of these personalities to emerge. I appreciate that you said, if this one is becoming a little bit more individual. <laughs> 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 yes, that's right. I'm trying to speak like Miss No, I'm, she's supposed to break that habit. If I, I'm, yeah. if I. <laughs> so the Unsullied worship the Lady of Spears, as we refer to in the trivia question at the beginning, they refuse to speak of much to outsiders. Now, I wonder, how does this work with their religion now? Is this another example of syncretism? The Nathi see the Lord of Harmony as the one true God, but the Nathi who are unsullied now also worship the Lady of Spears. So uh, it's not a, I'm not criticizing, obviously, because there's tons of syncretism in real world and in, in this planet, but I wonder how they 
you know, sort that out in their minds. The Lady of Spears is just one of the butterfly women to the Lord of Harmony. <laughs> Very <know>. pointy <laughs> wings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the spears are like the design on the wings. That would look really cool. Lady's face yeah. with with spear like oh, protuberances sure. or mm-hmm. designs. It's pretty cool. Someone commissioned Sanderixian. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a, a a bullet with butterfly wings. Is that Smashing oh, Pumpkin Son will have a spear with butterfly wings? Or but Marcellin should have a, a role going forward. I mean, he's a commander of one of these three free companies, and Danny's leading all these people to Westeros to face the others and the Whites and other Westerosi armies. Uh, he, he, we definitely haven't heard the last from this character. I do think his role is, you know, I don't think it'll be big role, but it'll matter, especially considering Danny's ro- relationship with Missandei is so important, and thus her, the fate of her brother will matter a lot to her. Uh, you know, there whatever she feels is going to matter. And we may even see a scene with them together, Masande and Marcel, and that'd be cool. Oh, uh, well, it could be cool. It might be like sad, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I still want, I'm optimistic that I would enjoy such a scene, you know, let's have that George, shall we? <laughs> so just some final thoughts here. The show made this really humorously sick joke that I don't even think they were aware of when they're like, Grey Worm's going to go to Nath at the end. I remember being like, wait, no, don't do that. <laughs> we're like laughing. Like, I was oh. picturing like, okay, well, this is now a perfect setup for like a two hour, like, hour and a half horror movie about <laughs> Grey Worm like, landing. It's like seeming idyllic place. And he's like wanting to investigate Masande's family. And like, yeah, anyways, it could actually be very good. But no, I do not think they... Did that on purpose? Yeah, I don't. I don't either. <laughs> it certainly did create some fodder for jokes. But yeah, I really don't think the books will go there. It's one of the most. It's one of the locations we could be most sure we won't see. Uh, even you know, as, as if there was like Ib and Lorath with like, yeah, there's just we're not going there. Maybe in some future production, but not in A Song of Ice and Fire. But maybe, you know, Masande says she doesn't want to go back. But what about Marcellin? Maybe he does. Maybe he does want to go back, you know? Yeah, I mean, if the, I will say if the Nymeria show, if the Roinar show actually happens, Ooh, that's where we would see it. That's the first place we would see it on screen. You are actually. so right. Um, but that requires that show being made and them actually going to all the places they go to. There's a lot, a lot stopping that. But Well, you heard it from Ashea, folks. Pray harder for the Nymeria show. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, would you even fit in? Like, the people are so peaceful and he's been trained as an unsullied. I don't know. I mean, you could, he could. You could find find peace again. But that's a it's hard to undo all that. You know, it would be, it would be a challenge. But worth a, wor- a worthy challenge. Or maybe he'll just die fighting the others in the north. You know, that would be not unexpected fate for for any character in this series but if he does survive he could be a part of that you know the dream of spring whatever that means so if danny dies i don't know and it seems pretty likely but i'm doubtful that both marcel and Masande die as well maybe all three of them will but even if they do there still could be a happy ending for her people for the nazi people let's say there is someone that survives of those three, Marcellin or Masande, more likely than Danny, probably. They could be part of the proceedings during A Dream of Spring. The various episodic, epilogic, epilogic? I'm going to use that word. It's <laughs> a good to, word. To, to wrap up various, the so many plot threads, that would be one way to, to have someone from Nath and, and just to have them have a conversation with one of the POVs, like a two-liner, just to get us some closure. But we could also learn as part of this or something entirely separate, and this is kind of my hope, that 
even as Danny is saving Westeros and maybe the world from the others, she also saves the Nathi people or helps them restore their, at least their trade economy and their ability to live in greater peace by smashing the slave trade. Like if she smashes it thoroughly enough, it'll really help the Nathi people, even the one, you know, the ones that she's never met, just the, the, their people as a whole would be really helped by that. The Basilisk Isles could still be a problem, but if you smashes their marketplaces, the places they sell their slaves, that would, that'd be a huge gift to her, to the, to that people that we could infer, or if not get direct evidence of from the text. It would be a good way to convey a lot. If, if we had a scene where the Nazi people were establishing a village on the coast Mm. And that would like tell us that the slave trade isn't a threat anymore. You know? Yeah, it would be very much like the little bit of greenery growing north of the wall. It'd be kind of a symbol, just like mm. that. Just one little bit yeah. would show it, that's the symbol of more to come. You're right. That's yeah. a that's a great way. If you're filming it, that's how you do it. I think, and that's a great. <laughs> yeah, you're a great call, Sean. And if we think about it in terms of winter, I mean, it's one of the least likely places to be impacted by winter. It, it, it could almost be a refuge, if not for the butterflies. <laughs> would be, again, those darn butterflies. A global long night would surely be a problem. Again, I wonder if they would have ancestral memory of, of that from some long time gone or a record of it somehow. Maybe they have songs like the Roinar. But it's interesting to consider that it could be it would be a refuge, at least for them. They wouldn't be as impacted by it. So I'm pretty optimistic about their future, even as I'm not as optimistic about so many other things, so many other characters. You know, when I, when I sit down and look at it, I think, yeah, you know. I think things will probably get better for them because I think a lot of the things that are making their lives hard are going to be severely damaged, if not outright destroyed, by the actions of Daenerys. It's easier for things to get better for them when they're not that ambitious in the first place. You know, they're not like this great empire that is going to fall. They're just a, a content community that wants to maintain. So, uh, it, it only takes people to stop being violent toward them for it to get better, right? It doesn't require some massive boon or some huge stroke of luck or some discovery of gold or anything else. So just yeah. all they need is for people to not violently attack them. Yeah. yeah. It's like what Jorah said to Danny, you know, peasants want to be, the commoners want to be left alone. You know, you high lords play your game of Thrones. It's like, this is like an, if entire people represented that concept. Right. Mm -hmm. And but people don't leave them alone. Yeah. Because <laughs> people keep playing that Game of Thrones, even if it's just in this case, maybe it's more about wealth than power. But as we know, those two things are tied together inextricably. And that's our episode, folks. The trivia question. Let's get to that, shall we? The question again was, what are the other nicknames or monikers for the Lady of Spears? And the answers are Lady of Spears, Ride of Battle, Mother of Hosts. Three names, same figure. That's right. Next week is the Neducation episode. And we'll be continuing from there with more episodes. Of course, we rarely stop. We only occasionally take a break. <laughs> episodes we mentioned along the way that you might turn to for further immersion. The Basilisk Isles episode, fairly recent one. The Gagasos Patreon uh, slash bonus episode is out there as well, as well as the Valar Reredus episode on the Children of the Forest, which contains some references to this uh, things that we discussed in this one as well. Not to mention Valar Reredus for A Dance of Dragons 
and A Storm of Swords, and where the these chapters are featured. Oh, yes, Nymeria, of course, you're right. Episode, Good yeah. catch, Shea. I almost forgot that one. Nymeria, I'm never obviously. forgetting Nymeria. No, Shea never would. <laughs> never would. Never would. Nymeria is like Dre. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to all of you who support us on Patreon or Spotify or through recurring donations on PayPal or just with a one-time donation from time to time. That works as well. Thank you to Joey, Jesse, and Bran for help with our music and video intro, as well as Michael Klarfeld for that. And this awesome map you see behind me and other maps you've seen behind me on different days. Those are pretty much all Michael Klarfeld. His site is claradox.de. You can get stuff like that from him directly. And until next time, you can catch us again for more. And you know what to do. Until then, Valar, reread us.